Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today's podcast is just me. Um, I'm giving a lecture at the Pembroke College Cambridge Politics Society. And it's entitled Our Dark and Dangerous Constitution. Why Brexit Means It's Time to Write It Down. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. To learn more, visit gold.ac.uk forward slash law. You can support the podcast if you enjoy it and find it useful. We'd really appreciate if you could consider giving a few pounds a month. That's via patreon.com forward slash better human. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. Follow us on Twitter at BeHumanPodcast, that's the letter B, and you can email me with suggestions or comments on adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. And if you want to sponsor an episode, you can email sponsor at betterhumanpodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed the lecture. Um, There were questions at the end, and I've tried to repeat them as you can't actually hear the questioners asking the questions. If you have any comments on this controversial topic, please do put them on Twitter or send them by email. So I want to start by asking you to imagine a house. Um, And on a dark winter's night, as we have tonight, it's a bright beacon on a hill. And we approach it by climbing a gentle incline with sheltering trees and powerful lamps on either side of a smooth and wide pathway. Before us, getting closer, is a large and attractive building with many large windows, each lit from within with bright lights. And as we reach the entrance, the door opens to reveal an attractive entrance hall with high ceilings and comfortable looking furniture. A helpful concierge offers to take our coat and direct our visit. And they give us a large map of the house, which clearly shows the location of each room and what we will find within it. We visit each room in turn, marveling at the calming decor and well-placed furniture. No room seems out of place and each has a clear function whether a bedroom, kitchen, or sitting room. We quickly find what we're looking for and settle in for a comfortable evening, feeling warm and welcomed. As you might have guessed, this warm and welcoming home is a metaphor for a constitution that works. Fundamentally, a constitution is a set of rules and principles which sets out the limits of government power the rights of citizens and the power structure of the state. It's the rules of the game. And it's like a home, because as citizens of the state, the constitution is where we live. A working constitution, like a good home, has five essential features. First, it's accessible. Someone needs to be able to walk down that wide and welcoming path so they can access and understand the rules of the game and what their rights are. And there's no justification in a modern state for the constitution only being accessible to a privileged elite, whether aristocrats, politicians, or lawyers. That's not a constitution, it's the secret code of a private club. So it has to be accessible. Secondly, it must be coherent. To go back to our house, 
when you enter, you should have a rough idea of where the kitchen is, where the bedrooms are and where the sitting room is. If you need to find the boiler because there's no hot water, better that it isn't hidden under the floorboards. You shouldn't have to walk through a toilet to get to the kitchen and so on. It has to be coherent. Thirdly, it has to be adaptable. If the size of your family increases or decreases, you shouldn't have to knock down the whole house to move things around. If someone in the family is disabled, you should be able to change the structure of the house to make it easier for them to access it. The house shouldn't be so preserved that you can't change anything at all, even if the occupants change beyond recognition. The house should work for the occupants. The occupants shouldn't work for the house. So it should be adaptable. And fourthly, it should be enshrined. And in other words, to continue with the house metaphor, it must have strong foundations which will protect against even the most extreme environmental shocks. Fifth, it must protect fundamental rights. A home is a place where the person can live, sleep, eat and flourish with strong walls to protect residents from the elements and potential invaders, as is a constitution. So does the UK constitution fit into this inviting picture? I know it's a bit late for Halloween, but I'm afraid to say the UK's constitution is less a comfortable and inviting home than a haunted mansion. Let's apply the five essential features. The UK's constitution is not accessible. You need a strong horse even to make it up the hill and fight through the tangled and thorny brambles. At night, you better hope the clouds don't block the moonlight. The UK's constitution is some, sometimes said to be unwritten or uncodified or partly written or partly codified. Nobody is sure. It has evolved gradually over hundreds of years, perhaps even thousands. Now, we might argue over which bit of our statutory law or parliamentary procedure or point of the common law are part of our constitution. But nobody can reasonably argue that our constitution is accessible to everyone. As a rule, if you need a special kind of lawyer or professor to understand which bit of the constitution applies to you, it's not accessible. It's good for lawyers, but bad for everyone else. So if you manage to cut through the brambles and avoid the beasts on the dark road and make it through the creaking door, you will find the building you are in is incoherent. Rooms are dark and the layout is confusing. You can walk down a corridor looking for the kitchen and end up falling into an endless abyss. There are musty corners with strange smells and ancient artifacts whose original purpose is long forgotten. It's not all bad, though. In recent times, parts of our constitution have undoubtedly been strengthened and set out in clearer terms. The UK Supreme Court has decided that some laws are constitutional instruments. As Lord Sumption said in a case about the high-speed rail link, there are principles, he said, contained in the common law, or these constitutional instruments, which are fundamental to the rule of law. But how does that work in practice? I'll come back to it when I talk about the Miller and Cherry case. Lord Sumption had a list of constitutional instruments, and th these are they. Magna Carta, 1215, Petition of Rights, 1628, 
the Bill of Rights and in Scotland, the Claim of Rights Act in 1689, the Act of Settlement 1701, the Act of Union 1707, the European Communities Act 1972, soon to be um, got rid of, most likely, the Human Rights Act 1998, and the Constitutional Reform Act 2005, which, amongst other things, established the Supreme Court and gave the Lord Chancellor a duty to protect the rule of law. I'm sure you knew that list already, and you probably have them all as posters on the walls in your, in your rooms. But most people don't, and most people wouldn't have even had known that list existed. And most people, in fact, a, a number of people would have given a different list. Incidentally, while we're talking about the Constitutional Reform Act, you may not know this, but before 2009, the Supreme Court was, it was actually was called the House of Lords. And it sat in a committee room in the House of Lords. And if you wanted to go and see a hearing, um, as I did when I was a law student, you would have to go through security and walk down a musty corridor and find a small room with a little um, sign on the door that said House of Lords Court. And you would have to sit at the back if there was space. And there were about 10 seats um, to, for spectators. And when judges gave judgments, they gave them in the parliamentary chamber um, and that's what happens when you don't have a constitution. The separation of powers becomes hopelessly blurred. Um, to Lord Sumption's list, I would add the Equality Act 2010 and perhaps the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. The Equality Act 2010 protects us from discrimination, harassment and victimisation on the grounds of nine protected characteristics, such as race, religion and sexual orientation. Why is it separate from the Human Rights Act? an accident of history, another quirk of our strange constitution. The Fixed Term Parliament Act took power away from the Prime Minister to call an election whenever she or he wanted. It's a constitutional statute because it sets the basic rules of the game for the timing of elections. Or does it? We found out just last week that, in fact, one of its key safeguards that you would need a two-thirds majority to achieve a general election could be overcome by a simple one-line bill with a simple majority. Um, not such a safeguard after all. And so it's probably right to say that parts of our constitution are written down, but you may not be surprised to find out that bits have been written down gradually over centuries piecemeal, do not form a coherent whole. And there are bits missing. For example, just to pick a random example, out of the ether, what are the rules around referendums? We in the UK are not good at referendums. In fact, we do referendums really badly. The Brexit referendum, constitutionally speaking, was a complete shocker. In a state with a constitution, one of the benefits is that the constitution sets the rules for referendums, and referendums will have tangible results, often amending the constitution itself. So people know what's going to happen and politicians are forced to think through the consequences of a yes vote. I was involved in a high court challenge to um, the Prime Minister's decision not to do anything when the Electoral Commission found that there had been significant and quite extensive cheating amongst official actors in the, during the referendum campaign. But the reality was, and what the court found, is that because there were no safeguards contained in the particular act of parliament, that happened to be the, um, the, the act that gave rise to our referendum in 2016, there was nothing that the court could do about it, even though um, the 
cheating may well have had a significant effect on the very narrow results. A contrary example of a referendum working differently is, a, is the recent referendum in Ireland to legalise equal marriage. Everyone knew that if they voted yes, the constitution would change in a clear and specific way. By contrast, the Brexit referendum had no discernible outcome apart from the fact that the, the will of the people would be respected. But how it would be respected became the great question of the last three years and one which has, which has effectively brought down three governments, maybe four. So returning to my five features, is our constitution adaptable? Well, on its face, it is quite adaptable. But it's difficult to adapt a house when your blueprint is missing parts and is folded strangely and has sort of brown marks on it, which obscure parts. And people argue over which bit, which bit goes there and over here, and maybe there should be, that bit shouldn't be there at all. And since we don't have a clear and coherent idea of the whole, if you attempt to change one part, another may unexpectedly collapse. The fixed term parliament was a good example. It was a statute passed almost on a whim to appease a junior coalition partner, the Lib Liberal Democrats, um, who were junior to the Conservatives. And the idea of it was to reassure the Liberal Democrats that if a coalition agreement was reached, that they could be confident that the government wouldn't then just decide to have another election. But it generated bizarre and unwanted effects years later and were suffering the results because it allowed zombie governments, that is governments without majorities, to be trapped without being able to call an election for months or even years. So whilst the, the, our UK constitution is adaptable, there's little prospect of substantial renovation. You'd be lucky just to make it out of alive, let alone start a building project. Um, and it may be said that I'm caricaturing, and to an extent I am. One of the best arguments for retaining our partly written constitution is that you don't have, if you don't have clear rules, they can be molded to fit the circumstances. And this is a powerful argument, but it has its limits. It relies on an implicit agreement between people doing the adapting that they'll constrain their behavior according to some basic principles. The problems come when people start to breach that implicit agreement. For example, again, to pick one from the ether, when can a prime minister prorogue, that is suspend parliament? That's an issue which until a few weeks ago was never considered by the courts. And indeed few people, perhaps present company accepted, had ever even heard the word prorogue. In fact, I can, barely still, I can still barely say the word prorogue and prorogation is even harder. Um, um, but many eminent legal experts thought that the courts couldn't, even though they knew about the concept of prorogation or considered it, they believed the courts could never consider it because it was non-justiciable. Um, and that was because it was thought to be a decision which purely fell within the political realm, where politicians are, to an extent, trusted to comply with the unwritten conventions of our constitution. Now, it, might, it can be argued that in a state with a constitution, there are less unclear areas such as this. And as Boris Johnson found out in the Miller and Cherry case in the Supreme Court, that, rule, that trust would only apply as long as politicians kept their end of the bargain. 
not using their powers in a way which was contrary to the constitution, the unwritten constitution. See the problem. Um, but we all know the rules, right? Or we should do. It's also muddled. You can see why the prime minister might have wanted to try his luck and perhaps even why he was so confused and angry when his luck failed. And in fact, it couldn't have failed more dramatically. The Supreme Court came to the rescue with an 11-0 majority, um, the most resounding defeat of a government in our legal history, and all just happened in a few weeks. Um, Lady Hale, you will probably know, issued the only judgment with which the other 10 justices agreed. Now, I, I can tell you as a lawyer, getting two judges to agree to an outcome is hard enough. It's a bit like herding cats. But getting 11 justices, 11 of the 12 justices of the Supreme Court to agree on anything is really quite extraordinary. And the court decided that the issue of prorogation was, first of all, justiciable, in that it fell within the constitutional competence of the courts. And secondly, the prorogation was unlawful, as it fell outside the legal limits of the prime minister's powers and should therefore be quashed. And quashed is a legal term that I guess means squashed, or at least got rid of. And that's what happens to the prorogation, as if by magic, Parliament was no longer prorogued. Um, Lady Hale, or the spider, as she's become known because of the silkiness of her judgment, which ensnared the Prime Minister, um, but also the spider brooch that she wore to hand it down, said quite a bit in the judgment about our constitution. And I'm going to read a little bit from it. Although the United Kingdom does not have a single document entitled the Constitution, it nevertheless possesses a constitution established over the course of our history by common law, statutes, conventions and practices. Since it has not been codified, it has developed pragmatically and remains sufficiently flexible to be capable of further development. Nevertheless, it includes a number of principles of law, which are enforceable by the courts in the same way as other legal principles. In giving them effect, the courts have responsibility of upholding the values and principles of our constitution and making them effective. It is their particular responsibility to determine the legal limits of the powers conferred on each branch of government and to decide whether any exercise of powers has transgressed those limits. The courts cannot shirk that responsibility merely on the ground that the question raised is political in tone or in context. Now, what are those principles? That's the question, the key question. She went on. The legal principles of the Constitution are not confined to statutory rules, but include constitutional principles developed by the common law. We have already given two examples of such principles, namely that the law of the land cannot be altered except by or in accordance with an Act of Parliament, and that the government cannot search private premises without lawful authority. Many more examples could be given. Such principles are not confined to the protection of individual rights, but include principles concerning the conduct of public bodies and the relationship between them. And she goes on to give examples of justice having to be administered in public, the principle of the separation of powers between the executive, parliament and the courts, and various others. 
But then she pulled out two fundamental principles of our constitutional law, which she said were relevant to the present case. The first was the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, that laws enacted by the Crown and Parliament are the supreme form of law in our legal system with which everyone, including the government, must comply. The sovereignty of Parliament would, however, she said, be undermined as the foundational principle of our constitution. If the executive could, through the use of the prerogative, prevent Parliament from exercising its legislative authority for as long as it pleased. That, however, would be the position if there was no legal limit upon the power to prorogue Parliament. So that's the first principle, parliamentary sovereignty. The great principle of the Brexiteers, ironically. A second constitutional principle that the Supreme Court found and identified or unearthed was that of parliamentary accountability. As Lord Bingham of Cornhill said, the conduct of government by a prime minister and cabinet collectively responsible and accountable to parliament lies at the heart of Westminster democracy. And then a bit later in the judgment, she said this. And when I read this paragraph, I thought this is the one that's aimed at Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Let us remind ourselves of the foundations of our constitution. We live in a representative democracy. The House of Commons exists because the people have elected its members. The government is not directly elected by the people, unlike is the position in some other democracies. The government exists because it has confidence in the House of Commons. It has no democratic legitimacy other than that. This means that it's accountable to the House of Commons and indeed the House of Lords for its actions, remembering always that the actual task of governing is for the executive and not for Parliament or the courts. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good to me. Um, and so the courts did what the courts do. They identified the relevant principles and rules and they applied them to the facts of the case. And in this case, the facts were, as the court found them, that the Prime Minister had not only given no valid reason, he'd given no reason at all for the length of time for the six-week prorogation. Simply no reason at all because, and let's read between the lines, if the Prime Minister had gone to court and said, I've, I've prorogued for six weeks to avoid my legislation being, my, my deal-making or my legislation being affected by un, un, inconvenient parliamentarians, then that probably would have gone down even worse than the actual argument went, although it's difficult to imagine it going down much worse. Um, so the court identified the principles and the relevant principles were constitutional principles. The principle of parliamentary sovereignty is well known, parliamentary accountability less so. And although the court gave a shopping list of previous cases where it found that principle, we are still left with a sense of a, of, judicial, of a judicial wand being waved. And a cynic might say, or at least a skeptic, that the, judges, that the justices found the principle to suit the outcome that they wanted. And I can tell you, as, as someone who is in the courts regularly, that's what judges sometimes do, and that's, you know, that's human nature. Now, there's a reasonable argument that the Miller and Cherry case confirmed 
how adaptable our constitution is and showed us that the Supreme Court, if pushed, would push back on the people's behalf. And I'm tempted towards that argument. We lawyers are particularly comfortable being cast as saviors of the people. Um, makes a change. But there's also a fundamental instability here and a risk. The cost of adaptability is that the judges are tasked not just with interpreting our constitution, but also identifying it. They have been designated as our constitutional gurus. I take no issue with judges interpreting our constitution. That's the practice across practically every other developed democracy in the world. And indeed, amongst developed democracies, only the UK, New Zealand and Israel have no written constitution. But in the Miller and Cherry case, arguably the justices weren't just interpreting, they were creating. And there's an irony here, is one of the reasons that people say we shouldn't have a written constitution is, it was is, it is that it would hand judges too much power, as in the United States. But from the Miller and Cherry case, it appears that they have the power in any event, but without the constraints of a clear, coherent, and democratically established written constitution. In other words, the courts identify the constraints on the power of politicians, but who identifies the constraints on the power of judges? Now, I'm not arguing here, as some others argue, that judges are abusing that power for now, but I do think there has been a step change following the, the, the Miller and Cherry case and the first Miller case as well, which was about the triggering of Article 50. But this is not a comfortable position for judges to be in. One day, they'll be the saviors of the people, but on another, as the Daily Mail called them in the first, the first Miller case, they will be the enemies of the people. And you may or may not remember that there was a headline on the Daily Mail after the, I think it was the Court of Appeal judgment in the first Miller case. The first Miller case was about whether the Prime Minister could trigger Article 50 without parliamentary approval, so without a statute from Parliament. And the court said, contrary to what Theresa May wanted, that you, she would need a parliamentary statute because triggering Article 50 would potentially reduce or affect fundamental rights, so it needed parliamentary approval. And the Daily Mail printed a picture of three judges, who the public don't necessarily know, and with the headline, Enemies of the People. And certainly in my career, and in perhaps our entire history, that's the closest we've got to judges being identified as for, for populist outrage. Um, and it was a really dangerous situation and really problematic but judges are stepping into these roles more and more often and having to decide fundamental pieces of the convention, sorry, of the constitution. In an ideal situation, judges should be neither saviors or enemies, they should be judges. And it's not ideal to expect the judges to ride to the rescue every time a politician breaches a fundamental principle of our democracy. 
you might think that it was a travesty in the first place that there was no written rule to explain in what circumstances a prime minister can shut down parliament. So adaptability has its benefits, but it also has costs. And one of the points I would make about the problem with expecting judges to be the backstop, to coin a phrase, when, some, when a politician does something unconstitutional, is to bring a legal case is extremely difficult and expensive. It happened to be that in the Miller and the Cherry cases, they, the claimant legal teams were extremely well-resourced, represented by commercial solicitors, the top barristers in the land representing them, crowdfunding um, through, the, uh, through the roof, hundreds of thousands of pounds raised. But not every breach of constitutional principles will give rise to that kind of attention, that kind of support, and those kind of resources. And in fact, if one thinks of less disadvantaged groups than the people who brought those cases, the, the, the elite politicians and business people, and I have no issue with that, but if one thinks about the less disadvantaged people who may have their rights trampled by a government, they may not have, and are like, unlikely to have, those same resources. So it's not straightforward at all to bring a legal case. Um, so adaptability has its benefits, but it also has its costs. Going back to my tests, is our constitution enshrined? Well, its foundations are deep, going back to at least 1215 and Magna Carta. But those foundations are also unstable. Many visitors comment on how strong they look, but this supposed strength is in many ways untested. And we may have seen a, a small test in the last few months, but I wouldn't want to trust those foundations if we were to experience a really bad weather. And we're starting to, arguably, at the moment. And it's correct to say, as Lady Hale did, that some of our constitutional principles are fairly well established in law. But remember that a government with a simple majority could, most probably, though we don't really know, and that's a problem, could legislate against these principles because of the sovereignty of Parliament. Let's give an example. If Boris Johnson obtained a majority in the next election, he could, in principle, legislate to allow the Prime Minister to prorogue Parliament whenever they liked. Now that's unlikely, and it's an extreme example. And the courts may decide to up the ante again, for example, discovering a power to strike down primary legislation. But it is technically possible. And do we really want to find out? And are we prepared to take the risk? If you had asked me, or any, I, I guess most people, six months ago, would the Prime Minister attempt to shut down Parliament to avoid uncomfortable and inconvenient politicians getting in the way of his policies, you would say, well, that would be absurd. They would never happen. It's an extreme example. And it's interesting when you read the Supreme Court judgment, one of the things that the justices were very concerned by was the extreme examples. They said, quite rightly, what happens if, this, this is all very well for a few weeks, what happens if the Prime Minister decides to shut down Parliament for a year? The Parliament couldn't stop him or her because Parliament wouldn't be sitting. 
and the courts couldn't stop them because we would have found this is about justiciability, you know, should the courts be able to look at these decisions at all? The courts wouldn't be able to stop them either. So who would stop them? Those extreme examples are now real because a prime minister did try it. Finally, fifth, does our constitution protect fundamental rights? Well, it does and it doesn't. They're there somewhere, but your chances of finding the kitchen when you're hungry or a bedroom when you're tired are relatively slim. In 1998, things got better because the Human Rights Act was passed. It's an act of parliament which enshrines the European Convention on Human Rights into domestic law. And that means that rather than relying on obscure common, right, common law rights, that's, that is rights discovered by judges over the centuries and not written down anywhere as a list for anyone but lawyers and academics to find, or having to go to Strasbourg to the European Court of Human Rights to get a judgment there, instead individuals are now protected by the simple and accessible list of rights contained in the European Convention. And as Lord Sumption identified in the HS2, the high-speed rail case, the Human Rights Act is a constitutional instrument. But it's not a constitution. It's generally the case, this is why, that a constitution is harder to change than ordinary law. For example, it may require a two-third majority, a supermajority, to be amended. And that has a simple logic. It insulates the Constitution from the cut and thrust of ordinary and partisan politics. A government may have a simple majority and therefore pass ordinary legislation, but to change a Constitution it must obtain wider cross-party consensus. And since the Constitution sits above the ordinary legislation in the legal pecking order, any ordinary statute passed by a simple majority can be struck down by the courts if it goes against the constitution. And that, just that, that supermajority is the important bulwark against the erosion of fundamental rights. For example, if a government is elected which is hostile towards a certain ethnic group, it'll be far more difficult for this hostility to be enshrined in law. For example, by reducing protections from discrimination for that group. Any such discriminatory law be struck down as unconstitutional. And to change the constitution would require a larger majority, which one would hope was far less likely. Now, again, we're talking about hypotheticals, but if you look around the world, it's not too hard to imagine that happening. For example, the Trump administration, when, it, when Donald Trump came to power, the, one of his first policies was to impose an immigration ban on a, a, a shopping list of states which happened to all have Muslim majorities because he said during his campaign to his rowdy base, we're going to stop the Muslims coming into America. Now that was in part struck down, and that's a longer and more complicated story, but it is an example of a politician who, A, was willing to use all his political capital to impose a, a, a fully discriminatory policy against a particular ethnic group who he didn't like and his supporters didn't like, and secondly, was constrained by doing so by the Constitution. 
So it's not beyond the realms of um, possibility. Our Human Rights Act is a crucially important law and it protects us against oppressive actions by the state. For example, it protects our right to life. A good example is that every death where the state may be complicit or may bear some responsibility has to be properly investigated to ensure that the state learns lessons. And that is why we had the final set of Hillsborough inquests that finally got to the truth of what had happened in the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. That's why we have had the Grenfell Tower inquiry, because there is a human rights responsibility to consider those cases. I acted a few years ago in two inquir public inquiries into the actions of the British Army in Iraq um, in committing alleged war crimes. And in fact, in one instance, they probably did. And those inquiries, I have no doubt, would not have happened if the Human Rights Act had not been enforced because what government willingly wants to investigate its own military a few years after a conflict? Um, it protects our free speech and right to protest. For example, our right to protest that there is an environmental emergency is protected by free speech rights and the right to protest. Our rights to privacy and family life our right not to have our photo printed in a newspaper um, if, if the printing of that photo is not in the public interest. Um, our right to free and fair elections. So if we are sent to prison, we will have some opportunity potentially to vote, whereas before there was no opportunity to vote for prisoners. Um, the right not to be arbitrarily detained. For example, people with um, mental health difficulties, who may not have the um, mental capacity to make decisions for themselves. The Human Rights Act has revolutionized the rules and the um, codes which are put in place to protect those people. And it could happen to any of us or our family. And yet, this important state could be repealed tomorrow by a one-line bill. It could be amended by a simple majority. It's not enshrined in any real way. And this is a real and present issue because the Conservative Party has, for the past 10 years, been attempting to repeal the Human Rights Act and replace it with something else, something which undoubtedly would be less. And that highlights a fundamental flaw in our piecemeal approach to constitutionalism. It places rights too much at the mercy of majority governments. And in our first-past-the-post system, the risk is even greater, as a simple majority in Parliament can be obtained with only around a third of the popular vote. So, as you can probably guess, I'm not particularly happy with the house that we're currently living in. It is a haunted mansion, and it's not fit for purpose. So if your house is not fit for purpose, what do you do about it? Well, you've got three options. You can redecorate a lick of paint here and some new carpet there. You could renovate room by room and hope that nothing collapses while you're doing it and nobody falls into any hitherto unknown pits. Or you could knock the whole thing down and start again. And you can probably guess what my proposal would be. I would tear the whole thing down and build a new one fit for the 21st century. 
even fit for the 20th century would be a good start. Um, the Brexit referendum and the deep mess we've been in ever since has highlighted the gaps and flaws in our constitutional architecture. Now, it's important to say that the const a written constitution or a new constitution will not solve all of our problems, and it may not even solve most of them. There are plenty of states out there with lovely constitutions, but angry and divided populations just like ours. And just because some people want a constitution, and even if it's a good idea objectively, that doesn't mean we could achieve the kind of widespread democratic consensus we would need to produce a legitimate constitution, and which would have to buy, and which would have to have buy-in from the wider population, as well as the political and legal institutions. But notwithstanding those concerns, my view is now is the time to do it for three important reasons. First, we're leaving the EU, probably. And that, and that will leave a gaping hole in our laws and legal protections. And it's difficult to emphasize how entangled and dependent on our legal system has become with the EU institutions and laws during the past 40 years. Overnight, directives which, will, which have been safety nets for some of our most, most basic rights protections, such as discrimination laws, will disappear. The EU Charter of Fundamental Rights will not be retained on anybody's present deal after the 31st of January 2020 or whenever we leave. So there'll be suddenly a huge hole in the floor of our house and we'll need to repair it with something. The second reason is the UK is an increasingly unstable multi-part entity. The issues of devolution and of independence will not disappear. The Scottish National Party will push for and may achieve a second independence referendum soon. And the position of Northern Ireland vis-a-vis -vis the UK has not been this dangerously poised since the Good Friday Agreement over 20 years ago. And anyone slightly over the age of undergraduates here will remember the terrible violence that was the norm on our streets, in our shopping centres, in our pubs before that. And we've got to do everything we can to avoid it. And a new post-Brexit constitutional settlement may be the answer. Third and finally, our human rights need to be properly enshrined. It's too risky for these to continue to be at the mercy of simple majorities. It's a real and present danger that a Conservative government with a sizable majority, perhaps backed by the Brexit Party or the DUP, will repeal the Human Rights Act and replace it with something which is fundamentally weaker. This uncertainty cannot continue. So just to finish, how do we do it? I'm a fan of Professor Geoffrey King's approach which is that it should be a creative and participatory constitutional convention or people's assembly, politically balanced and genuinely open, and ultimately confirmed by a referendum with more than a simple majority. The process here is as important and perhaps even more important than the end product. And I would also suggest that this should be repeated every decade afterwards so that the constitution can be further updated by a referendum, of course. Um, and I'll end by returning to my basic analogy. The weather is stormy in this period of history and it's getting stormier, but we're all on the path together. Together we'll have the opportunity to build from our chaotic present, a house which is fit for the future, accessible, coherent, adaptable, enshrined, and which protects fundamental rights. Now, of course, having a great house doesn't mean we will be able to live together within it, but 
it's a good start. Thanks very much. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. That's a great question. So it's essentially, there's there's an attention between codifying and leaving enough space and wriggle room to allow for some kind of discretion. Um, And that's that's a problem with all legal systems and all laws, in, in effect, you can never be so specific that can, you can account for all situations and you should always try and leave. Um, for example, in, with rights protections, enough discretion for a judge or whoever's applying it to use their common sense. And I think that's, that's fine. Um, I think that the, I wouldn't want a constitution which identified every possible scenario and every and possible breach of rights. And in fact, one argument against me is, would be, for the argument I've just made, is that if you'd written a constitution six months ago, you might have just completely ignored the question of when the prime minister can prorogue parliament, because maybe it would be so, seem so obvious that you would have left it out. And it's only when these situ- situations arise that you need this adaptable, the, the opportunity to adapt. But I think that the, the, the rights framework, so take the European Convention on Human Rights, is a good example of a simple, accessible and quite and clear set of rights, which has been applied through the case law of courts, so the European Court of Human Rights and also the UK courts, to apply to different situations. And I think that's the, that's the answer, is that you make it clear enough, so it's not so complicated that, it, that people can't understand it, and it's not so detailed that it becomes constraining, but it is clear that if you want to know what your rights are, they're here. If you want to know how Parliament works, it's there. If you want to know what the position, what the proper role of the courts vis-a-vis the executive, vis-a-vis Parliament is, it's there. So you have that structure, and we have some of that structure, but not all of it now. And then you let the courts, and to an extent, the other elements in the separation of power system negotiate around the the detail. Does that make sense? Kind of. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a great question. And, and it's again, a, it's a good argument against my basic proposition about enshrining. I think there are ways to get around it. I, th- I think that you have, you have benefits and costs to enshrining. The benefit is that what you've got, you keep on the whole, but the cost is that what you've got, you keep, and you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily adapt it. Um, and I think, and, 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 and I have, a, I've been interested, as it happens, um, I've just been recorded a couple of episodes of the, the podcast, um, one about um, LGBT rights and the history of it, and one about the history of the Human Rights Act. So, and, and with a couple of people who were instrumental in bringing in the, the, the Human Rights Act. And Charter 88 was a big part of that 
story that led to the Human Rights Act is one thing that people, the people who were involved in Charter 88, perhaps as students or as, um, as young professionals, then went on to be very involved in the, the creation of the Human Rights Act, which is interesting in, in itself, so sort of as a second option. But one of the things that came out of the LGBT discussion is one, of the, what we're, one thing that we're losing by losing the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights is it contains in it, unlike the European Convention and unlike the Human Rights Act, a right to equality. It's a, just a simple right to equality with no... Um, it, it also has discrimination provisions with protected characteristics and includes um, things that aren't included in, in the European Convention because it's from 1953, so sexual orientation is in there, for example. But it has this right to equality, and maybe one way of around it is you start with a simple right to equality and then you work from there, or you start with the list you have and make sure that that aspect, that list, is hived off for a different kind of um, updating. Or maybe to take things away, you need a two-third majority, but to add things, you just need a simple majority. And I do think there are ways of making it adaptable, um, but it is worrying. There, I mean, there are two very real possibilities in the next very, very short term period politically. One is that the Human Rights Act will be repealed um, and replaced with something different. And another is that the discrimination laws we have. So for example, the right to um, not to be discriminated against. And if you are discriminated against, get unlimited compensation in principle in the courts, that may well be taken away or maybe reduced because those are real things that have really been, you know, discussed on the, on the rights as what will happen post-Brexit when we're freed from the, con the red tape and the constraints of EU law. So I do think that you get to keep what you have element is quite attractive currently. Um, but you might argue against me, well, that's just because I'm, from the left, and I want more um, of, of the things that the left has achieved than, um, than others might. But I, you know, th those are costs and benefits. Yeah, that's a great question. So how do you make sure that the list of constitutional instruments going back almost a thousand years is incorporated into a constitution? I mean, my first point would be I still think that knocking the thing down and starting again is the right approach, but with some caveats. And the caveats are that the, when you're building this constitution, you would build it. The only way you're going to be able to get popular support for it across different political spectrums is you've got to respect what we already have. So you would, I have no doubt at all that the, a, a, any future constitution for the UK would Bring, would have parts of the language of Magna Carta and of the Bill of Rights, the 1689 Bill of Rights, put in it, and either put in it directly or effectively put in it, because they are keystones in our constitutional and political and you know um, national history. So I'd, I'm I'm sure they would be the more obscure elements, so um, aspects of the common law, such as the right not to be um, unlawfully searched or, you know, for the police need a warrant to enter the house, those sorts of things. Well, the answer is it will be complicated and constitutions can be very long and complex documents. But the way to achieve that is to bring, you would have to bring 
experts together with non-experts and creative people and artists and writers, and you have to do the best job you possibly can. I mean, one interesting thing that I learned quite recently is the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, so the 1948 um, declaration that came out of the United Nations straight after the Second World War, and which is still the foundational document where all other rights uh, instruments flow from, it was partly written, or it was partly and, and strongly inspired by some British authors, um, particularly A.A. A. Milne and I think Adolf Huxley, who had written a book about a Bill of Rights for Man. And it's it and, and it was and there were poets involved in the drafting, and there were artists, and it wasn't just you know legal wonks and academics. As much as we love legal wonks and academics, it wasn't just that those people. It was it was broader, and I think this process would have to be broad, and it would have to be respectful, and it would have to be informed. But I don't think it would be you know hundred. There's there's hundreds of other examples we can choose from. And we can pick from and we can pick and choose what's best. And I think it, it's, it's at the very least possible, but it wouldn't be straightforward or easy. Thanks. Yes, yeah, so, so would, would, would the Constitutional Convention get rid of the Queen? I think that, that would be a big question. Would the Queen be on the table is the, is, is the bigger question, really. And I have, a, I have a, my own personal political answer I'm not particularly a monarchist and I'm not a fan of the House of Lords in its, you know, you wouldn't design it that way if you were designing a second chamber. It's just kind of, it's a very British kind of evolved um, fudge that we have. Um, but my, my, my view is not the right, that's not the right answer. The answer is what this group of that's properly representative, unlike my brain, which is, you know, one, one brain, is and and that would be and the answer the answer would be the answer but i'm not sure i expect practically if this was ever to happen the monarchy would not be on the table i cannot imagine any parliament granting a con constitutional convention the option to get rid of the monarchy and i would expect that keeping the monarchy would be a a baseline for certainly a majority of the political establishment to go ahead with this process. I'd be really surprised. You know, it, I mean, that you can only, if there was this, if Jeremy Corbyn got a, a whopping majority in the next election, there is a possibility that that would happen. But even then, just because something goes through parliament, you know, and then you put it to a referendum, the referendum would be, do we want, do we want the queen or not? And probably um, you'd lose as if you were proposing to get rid of the monarchy. So I, I, I really doubt, practically speaking, that it would be even on the table. We don't get, I mean, we, we'll get, we can go so far, but the, I don't think we'll go that far. The Lords maybe though, the Lords, the Lords probably. Um, I think it's gone from vanishingly small prospect to still less than probable, but a decent, there's a decent chance. I think that's where it, I think there is now a seed has been planted um, through, because of what's happened with Brexit, because of the prorogation case, because of issues with devolution, and that's longer standing than just Brexit. That's really the last 20 years. 
I think a seed has been planted which may well grow into something like a, 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 British, a, a UK constitution. Um, but I still think it's less than 50%. But I'd say, I'm not, I'm not a betting man, but I'd say if I was advising a client prospects of success for this, I'd say about 40, maybe 35, which is better than 10, which is probably where it was two months ago. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to Pembroke College Cambridge for inviting me to give the lecture. If you want to support the Better Human podcast and you enjoy what we do and you want us to carry on doing it um, on a regular basis, then please consider giving a few pounds a month to patreon.com forward slash better human. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. The podcast is very kindly sponsored by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law and Undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open. To learn more, please visit gold.act.uk forward slash law. You can follow us on Twitter at BeHumanPodcast with the letter B and you can email me on adam at betterhumanpodcast.com or if you want to sponsor an episode, sponsor at betterhumanpodcast.com. Thank you very much to Samantha Brow, who is the editor of the podcast, and Natasha Holcroft-Eames, who is the research producer. Until next time, I've been Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Better Human.